Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of the Bible Breakdown. Very excited to continue our discussion of creation. Uh, so for the last couple of weeks, we've been all the way back in Genesis after finishing Revelation. We've been talking about creation of basically everything but humanity. Last week, we talked about the creation of humanity. And this week, we're actually going to take a little detour into Psalm 19. That's going to be our main text today. Uh, in Psalm 19, uh, part of that is David talking about how creation declares God's glory and that we can see God in creation. So we're taking more of a large-scale view of creation after looking a little more specifically the last couple of weeks. So excited to do that. So we'll be looking through all of Psalm 19. Uh, so he's going to talk about creation David, uh, this is a psalm attributed to David. Um, it's also going to discuss uh, the law of the Lord. He's also going to discuss his own sin and a realization that it's there and kind of then some um, practical stuff. I really love the progression here. It starts really, uh, really general, really broad, just seeing God in creation, then a little more specific, recognizing who God is and his character and the perfection of the law that he gives. And then even a little more specific, he gets into his own kind of personal encounter with the law of the Lord, what it looks like for him to recognize his own sin and then some action. So we have a really cool kind of, it's almost like a funnel um, with Psalm 19 uh, going from broad to specific. So looking forward to going through that. So we are going to start um, with the beginning as is normal in anything you read. Anybody ever like go to the back of the book? and read like the last few pages to see what was going to happen. Like if you were reading like a mystery thriller or something like that, man, that to me, I hate spoilers, so I can't do that. But we will not, I just kind of spoiled Psalm 19 a little bit by telling you what it's all about, but we are going to start at the beginning and we are going to start by reading verses one through six here in Psalm 19. It says the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. So we see here, David is stating that the heavens, and so um, you'll see in that second little line there. He's going to refer to it as the sky, talking about the same thing here. So we're not talking about um, heaven where uh, God the Father resides, where Jesus resides for now. Uh, we're talking about the the sky. So we're talking stars, sun. We're going to talk about the sun later. Um, that's what we're kind of thinking. I think generally in time we're reading in scripture and we see heavens, we can be a little bit like, okay, there's a heaven, there's heavens. But this is uh, basically saying the, the sky um, what we see above us, the universe, you might even say, declares the glory of God. Uh, and it shows that God is glorious. And it also shows that he is a creator. Okay, so then as he continues here, he's going to kind of personify the heavens, saying that they speak and reveal knowledge about God. So when it says day to day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge, he's talking about the heavens. He's personifying the heavens as an entity that speaks about God. Um, so when it says, pours out speech, pretty clear and revealing knowledge, really knowledge about God. And even to the extent that it is, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard there in 
verse three. So not only that, uh, but then even going into verse four, their voice goes throughout all the earth and the words, the end of the world. So he's saying that the heavens, what the heavens say about God and his glory and his handiwork uh, should be clearly heard by everyone everywhere. Everyone should be able to see God's handiwork in specifically the heavens in God's creation. Um, and this is not the only part of scripture in which we see that a, a an author points to creation as evidence for God or a reason to give glory for God. We also see this in Romans 1, uh, a fairly well-known passage as well. Uh, Romans 1, 18 through 23 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So we see here this is Paul writing, um, and he's basically saying what can be known about God. And he's saying specifically that he has eternal power and that he has a divine nature, um, that it should be able to be seen in creation, um, that these things are clear that there is a creator. And in verse 21, although they knew God, and I think probably what he means there for, um, you know, especially for people who maybe didn't know actually about the God of Israel, they probably realized there was a God, but it says they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him. He may even be looking back to, you know, think about the time of Noah when um, you would expect that um, humanity being young um, and not having a lot of history, though, of course, we don't know an exact timeline, but He's, I think, saying they should have known that he was God from the beginning. Instead, what we see um, before Noah is that people have just kind of um, devolved into evil in that day and that God only saw Noah as righteous. So there was obviously people who were not recognizing or if, even if they knew God, they were not honoring him as God. So this is one of those times where we talk about So you may have heard terms like general and specific revelation thrown about. Um, those are terms that sometimes get changed, but the general idea, not to be confusing, the idea is that uh, general revelation is kind of things we see all around us, and creation would be one of the biggest things of that. Specific revelation would, uh, or sometimes special revelation, uh, would be something like uh, scripture. So it's something that is specific. It gives us information about who God is specifically, not just that he is like, wow, somebody must have created this world, but even specific attributes that he has. Another example of special revelation may be something that the Holy Spirit reveals, and maybe that's much more personal than it is corporate, but um, those are examples of how God reveals himself. And one way that we see in scripture, God reveals himself is through creation. And I, I think too, that as we, as believers, even in the, you know, we're not in the time of Noah, obviously, even in the 20th, 21st century, I think we see how people recognize the uh, glory and beauty of the universe. And instead of ascribing it to God, um, it's ascribed to some sort of quote unquote natural phenomena or something like that. You think about 
um, you know, theories of evolution that um, do not have intelligent design uh, behind them. I remember I was having a conversation with somebody um, doing uh, evangelism on campus when I was in college. And he was just like, you know, I, I believe in, you know, the Big Bang. And I was like, okay, that's, I understand that. So that's a very common scientific theory. So uh, I just kind of kept pressing. So where did this come from? Where did this come from? Where did this come from? I kind of got down to the last part. He's like, well, there were these particles. And I was like, okay, well, where did the particles come from? And he said, I guess they were just always there. And I asked him, I was like, do you feel more comfortable believing in infinite particles than maybe an infinite eternal God? He said, yeah, I believe in the particles. And I was like, all right, well, not much you can do there. If you're going to believe in infinite, infinite particles, I can't disprove infinite particles or anything like that. So uh, it's just a, an interesting way that we we are always, I think, as just a uh, humanity, we're so curious about origins and where did things come from? How did we get to where we are? How did we become like we are? How did the world become like it is? How did I come to think? Where did these morals come from? Where does a conscience come from? We're so curious, I think, about origins that um, from the dawn of time, uh, people have been creating origin stories who doesn't even in their comic books who doesn't love an origin story for their superhero right that's just something we naturally are bent toward but as we see here in uh especially in the romans passage um our our bent is unfortunately not to give credit to the true god of the universe the true creator but to think of something that um, maybe fits our uh, schemes a little bit better, something that fits our desires a little bit better. So, uh, but David here in Psalm 19, giving all of that credit to God and recognizing that creation has a voice of its own. Creation has a voice in which it's saying, God is glorious. God has created this beautiful universe. Everyone should be able to hear it, but we know to that not everybody hears it the same way. And uh, so then he finishes here this first stanza um, with describing the sun. So he kind of personifies it as uh, a bridegroom leaving his changer, a strong man running its course, you know, the idea that the sun rises and the sun sets and it's rising is from the end of the heavens. Now, this is, this is another thing about uh, the Bible that sometimes irks me. No, people's reaction to the Bible that irks me. The Bible doesn't irk me. Sometimes people will say as like a proof against scripture, they'll point to um, like Joshua. There's a story about when the um, sun stands still in the sky and they'll be like, see, the Bible can't be true. Um, it talks about the sun standing still when we know the earth, you know, revolves around the sun, the earth rotates. And I'm always irked by that because have you ever like gone early in the morning to see a beautiful earth rotation? Like, no, we call it a sunrise. Have you seen a, beautiful earth rotation at the end of the day. No, we call it a sunset. We describe phenomena. Like that's how we describe the sun rising and setting, even though astronomically we know that is not necessarily true. That's still how we describe it. Um, that's how it's being described here. Um, the author here, and especially in poetry like this, when in a Psalm, like talking about, obviously the psalmist doesn't literally believe that the sun is a bridegroom leaving his chamber either, but uh, we have to understand, too, when it comes to this is not an astronomy textbook, um, and I think it's a little bit hypocritical to call it a sunrise um, for ourselves. But then if we look back on scripture and we nitpick and say, no, the sun didn't stand still, that's just a little aside, not too important. But 
all that to say, that's how David is describing creation, how he's describing the sun. And then in the next section, he's going to move a little bit more to that specific or special revelation, specifically talking about God's law. So in 7 through 11, David says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. So David goes into this description of God's law and of the effects that God's law has. So moving from that general revelation of creation, which everybody can see, to the more specific special revelation of God's law, which not everybody um, did see at that time, especially, and obviously not today either, um, though we are very blessed to have uh, God's law written in scripture that we can have in our very own hands uh, these days. But he, he's talking about how good the law of the Lord is. So I'm just going to list out a few. So in, in each of these little couplets here, you've got the law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Um, the precepts, the commandment, all these kind of things. Those are all meant to describe the law. So these are not um, separately the law, separately the testimony, separately the precepts, separately the rules. Like these are all meant to describe uh, God's law. And of course, when we talk about the law, we're thinking specifically um, the law as given to Moses. So we primarily see that in Exodus through Deuteronomy, uh, the giving of the law at Sinai, Ten Commandments, uh, Leviticus, laws for Levitical priests. Um, we see some in Numbers, things about the tabernacle, Deuteronomy being the second giving of the law. Um, so that's what he's got in mind. So basically, uh, the way that God has laid things out um, in for the nation of Israel is kind of what David has in mind here. But here's some ways that he describes the law here perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true. He also describes it as warning. And then he also is describes the effect of the law after each of these. So he gives kind of a description of the law and then what its effect is on the one who listens to it and obeys it, um, reviving, making wise, rejoicing, enlightening, enduring, righteous, rewarding. So these are some of the effects of what it looks like to know and follow the law of the Lord. These are some of the effects. And I couldn't help but think, do we think of God's law this way? Now, we don't think of the literal law, the Exodus through Deuteronomy law, the same way. Um, We are not um, beholden to it in that way, though um, we know that God still has commands for us that we see in the New Testament. We know, too, that the law reflects God's character, and many of those aspects are not changing. Um, and so we, we still have a lot to learn, even from a law that was for a specific people at a specific time. Um, but when we think about what God would have us do, what God calls us to as followers of Christ, um, do we think of it as perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true? Um, do we believe that by following it, that it's reviving, that it'll make us wise, that it will cause rejoicing, enlightening, that it'll allow us to endure, that it will bring righteousness, that it will be rewarding? Uh, I think sometimes we can be tempted to think of God's law in a couple different ways. Maybe we think it's restrictive. Um, We want to do more stuff um, and we 
uh, don't want to follow God's law. Um, we might be able, we might sometimes think of it as really strict, um, too hard. Like it's too hard to follow God's law. Um, I would like a law that is a little more lax, that uh, allows a little bit more um, of my own choice and maybe a little bit less repentance. Uh, maybe we think of it as complicated. Like it's really hard to know what God really wants me to do, how he wants me to live my life. There's a lot of biblical imperatives that I got to work through. Maybe I think of it as complicated. Maybe I think of it as irrelevant. Maybe there are things that we see in scripture say, mm, that just seems old, old fashioned. That seems out of date. That seems um, bigoted. That seems, you know, whatever it may be. Maybe we sometimes are tempted to think that it's irrelevant and that it's not something that is still true for us today. And I kind of got into that, but outdated, um, maybe too hard to follow. I kind of got into that too with um, strict, um, that maybe we just say it's just it's just too much. How could people be expected to follow this, especially if they grew up in a difficult household, if they you know have addictions, if they have um, natural inclinations, whatever it may be, maybe it's just too hard to follow. So we must we must just cast it aside. But what does David say about it? He says, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. How often do we spend time thinking about money and the um, the effects of having or not having money? I know for me, that is something that is a regular reality of life. And there is a, obviously for all of us, we have to be responsible and we have to think about our finances, but how many of us wouldn't, wouldn't say, you know, maybe we wouldn't say, oh, I want to, you know, be a billionaire, but how many of us, if offered the chance to say, you will have everything you need and you'll never be concerned about money. You know, we could have some genie in a bottle, say you will be able to have all the money we'll ever need. We're not going to be just, you know, be yeah, billionaires, maybe but everything you need, It'll be taken care of for you to live a very comfortable life. I think all of us would probably say, yeah, uh, I think I'm on board. I think I'm on board with that. But David's saying that the law of the Lord, these things that sometimes we see as restrictive or strict or complicated or irrelevant or outdated or too hard to follow. He says that that is more valuable than even much fine gold. Even to say I have complete financial security for the rest of my life and maybe even into the lives of my children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, as good as that sounds, he says it's more valuable to have the law of the Lord, to know the law of the Lord, and to obey the law of the Lord. That's more valuable. I don't know about you, the... Um, that one, maybe the gold part speaks to me a little more than the sweeter than honey drippings of the honeycomb. I don't have too much of a sweet tooth. Okay. If you've got a sweet tooth, maybe it's really hard for you to imagine like how oh, even better than that incredible cake or cookie or pie cobbler, um, whatever your, whatever your fancy is that if you could have all of those things and you wouldn't have to worry about any of the health implications, he said, no, David says it's actually better to know and obey the law of the Lord. It's better to follow what God would have us do than even have these most valued comforts of the world. And, and, you know, you could really maybe gold and sugar don't really appeal to you too much. Think of whatever a comfort of yours you could have is in this life and think, what if that was fully fulfilled um, without any 
uh, without any question that you could be absolutely certain, whatever that comfort or desire that you have, it could be fulfilled to the nth degree. You would never have to worry about it at all. I'm sure David would say even that the law of the Lord is better. And so I think as believers, we have to recognize that um, even things like accept social acceptance, um, people thinking that um, we're nice, people thinking that we're um, tolerant, people thinking that we're wise, whatever those things may be that sometimes in our culture bump up against scripture, it's more valuable to cling to the law of the Lord even to than to what um, maybe the masses would say of the law of the Lord. And that's difficult. It's difficult to live in a culture that does not agree with um, some of the things in the law of the Lord. And in fact, think they mean that you're a, a hateful person. So it's, it's a reality of our world, but David says, and he's a writer of scripture, so I believe it too. Uh, he says it's better to follow the law of the Lord. And so that is something that I hope that you can spend some time reflecting on. What is, what is that maybe that aspect of the law of the Lord, that aspect of what God calls you to as a believer that's just really hard, that really bumps up against something that you really desire um, and maybe either um, explicitly or kind of uh, maybe even implicitly you tend to um, believe that the thing you desire is more important than what God would have for you. So I know that's been good for me um, this week, um, even thinking, and we'll get, as we get to the end, I'll kind of share a little more about just how I've experienced this Psalm as I've prepared for it. Um, but till then, let's move to 12 through 13. So here, David is going to move even more specific. He's going to be kind of encountering the idea of his own sin. So verse 12 says, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. So like I said, more specific here, his personal dealing with his own sins. And we see here, David is recognizing that there's both hidden and willful sin. So in verse 12, these hidden faults in verse 13, presumptuous sin. So presumptuous, um, the uh, Merriam Webster definition is failing to observe the limits of what is permitted or appropriate. And it carries this connotation, um, both in the English word and also in the original Hebrew word of uh, arrogance. So these, these presumptuous sins are kind of more those willful. Maybe I don't, I, I fail to observe the limits that are before me. Maybe I think I'm above them. Maybe I think the rules don't apply to me, um, which we all have um, instances, I think, in which our sin kind of takes that form. But so he's basically asking God, please forgive me of these hidden sins. And also, just so you know, I'm admitting that I also have willful sins. And even in those, just don't allow them to have dominion over me. Um, I think we could especially think of things like habitual sin there um, that maybe just we can't seem to shake. You know, maybe we uh, struggle with for for years, decades um, that he's asking God to let these have dominion over me. And he says, then I will be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Really, I think he's recognizing that if God declares him innocent, then he's innocent. If in verse 12, declare me innocent then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression, recognizing that it is God who 
is the one who forgives sin. So he's asking God, not only reveal this sin to me, protect me from this sin. And ultimately I know that um, as I move past these sins that I can hopefully be innocent of greater transgression, but also knowing that if you declare me innocent, then I am innocent. And we have that same promise, especially fully realized through Jesus, that we can also be declared innocent of great transgression, that we can be forgiven. So again, kind of getting even more specific. So there's the law and I recognize the law is good, but then I even see myself in the way that I measure up to the law and I recognize that I do not measure up. I cannot keep this law. And I know that not only do I have sin that I'm doing willfully, I know there's sin in my life that I'm not even 100% sure about. And God, I I need you to work on that as well. Um, Just a a posture of uh, humility um, toward God's law and our measuring up to it. Uh, The fact that we miss the mark, uh, which is one of the ways that um, we describe sin is missing the mark, the mark being God's law. And so then as we finish up, we've kind of got a a little bit of an action step here that David gives us in verse 14. This one may be familiar to some of you. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So how does one honor God as creator, obey the law, stay away from sin? This is a a prayer that in David's words and the quietness of his heart that he will be pleasing to God. So he wants to be pleasing to God. So he, by saying, let the words of my mouth, he's, he's making a request, allow, make this possible for the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart to be acceptable in your sight. And so first with the words, as we think about what does this mean for us? So as we think about what does it mean for the words of our mouth to be acceptable in the sight of others, um, the way we speak to one another, I know that, um, For many of us, I think all of us to some extent, um, we live in a very uh, divided time. There's a lot of things to divide us. We were not particularly united before COVID, but I think that's really um, shown a lot of fault lines in our relationships with others. And everybody's got a, a different point of view. And oftentimes we all have one way of talking about it, which is, um, this is my way and this is the best way. And, um, Really, that's there's just been a huge change in the way we speak to one another. I think just as a culture, the way we speak to one another, we we don't we just don't seek to listen or understand as well as we I think probably once did. And I I was even thinking about this today. I mean, when you go into a period of isolation like we did back in mid 2020, uh, what what does that do when you don't don't have those uh, physical interactions with other people and you're not having to see people's faces and you're absorbing all this information somewhat in a vacuum. I think it's kind of created these fault lines in our relationships, in our culture, um, just because we we went through a significant period of time where we didn't have to face one another. Um, the way people speak to one another on, an, on the internet versus in person is so different. There's a reason. It's because when you speak to somebody in person, you see their face and you see what your words do. You see the damage they have. Uh, online, you can uh, ignore the damage your words might have. But as I think about letting the words of our mouth um, be acceptable. I think about the way we speak to one another, what we talk about, also important. Um, are we talking about things that are uh, are good? Um, that passage in Philippians where Paul tells people to dwell on these things that are of God, not um, of man. 
What do we talk about? How do we honor God with our words? How do we talk about God? Do we use his name flippantly? Do we give it the glory, the honor that it deserves? Do we talk about him the way he deserves to be talked about, talked about? And, and then also how we showed humility and generosity with our words. Again, um, we, it's easy to get caught in patterns of not speaking with humility or generosity, but um, in order to be heard rather than to hear and understand. But that's how we honor God with our words is with humility and generosity in our words. And as I think about the meditation of the heart is kind of what we think on, what our thoughts dwell on. Um, I think this has been probably for me just the most um, poignant part of this uh, passage is just thinking, what, what do I spend my time worrying about? What do I spend my time overly focused on? Is it on how how much I could be obedient to the Lord? How sorry I am for the transgressions I've made against him? Like, no, they're usually things that are very focused on me, things that provoke anxiety, and maybe I feel like I can think them away. Um, that's, I think, been, as I've gone through this, just the most, the biggest thing. And that's kind of become my prayer of this week is just let the meditation of my heart be ple- acceptable in your sight. Lord, let me think about the things that I should be thinking about. Let me dwell on the things I should be dwelling on and not just looking. It's like my hands just right in front of my face and I can't see any farther than that. Um, what are what our regular desires are, what we do with sinful thoughts and desires. Those are all things that are kind of go into that meditation of the heart. So I hope for you as, as we have gone through this psalm that it can be an opportunity to look at creation, to look at God's law, to look at ourselves and how we measure up to God and his law and that we can just be humbled before the feet of Jesus and just grateful that he has extended that grace to us and that we don't have to be ashamed, but that we have a way to approach the throne of glory with confidence because of what Jesus has done. So my prayer for you is that um, this can guide you as you um, try to focus your words and meditation of your heart on who really deserves it. And that is Jesus.